If you'll turn, please, to um, Romans and chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I have listed uh, verses 1 through 12, but that was a bit ambitious, so I'll just read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Romans chapter 4, please. Did you find that you'll see in the bulletin a prayer of illumination? These prayers to help us to see what's true in the scripture, that God will help us and open, open the word to us. And um, so I'd like to, for us to pray this together, this prayer of illumination. Let's pray together. Dear God and Father, we thank you for your infinite goodness and love to us. You continually keep us in the word, in faith, and in prayer, that we may know how to walk before you in humility and in fear, and that we may not pride ourselves on our own wisdom and righteousness, skill and strength, but glory alone in your power that is strong when we're weak and gains the victory. Write into our hearts by the Holy Spirit what is so abundantly found in the scripture, and let us constantly keep it in mind and permit it to become far more precious to us than our own life and whatever we can cherish on earth. Help us to live and act accordingly. Do you be praised and thanks forever. Amen. So Romans in chapter 4, verse 1, please. This is the word of the Lord. Then what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works... He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. There's a story that uh, Charles Spurgeon, a um, preacher of uh, some time ago in London, liked to tell uh, as he read this passage. It's a story about a painter, an artist, who had a third floor studio in London, and one day he looked out of his window and he saw a street sweeper. And uh, he was mesmerized by the plainness and just the hard work and service of this person. And uh, so he went down and he met him and said, could I paint you? Could I, could I do a portrait of you? And the man was shocked, but uh, also honored, and said, sure, the next day then. Got up and got all dressed up and cleaned, cleaned up and put on his, his, his best suit, and he went up to the painter's uh, studio, and the painter dismissed him. And uh, the man was confused. And he said, why? He says, you didn't need to clean up to come. I wanted to paint you as you are and give this to you as a gift. Spurgeon liked to tell that story because he said that's justification by faith in Christ alone. That we don't clean up to come to him. That he receives us and gives to us his righteousness. He's the cleanser. 
And the question that Paul addresses really in these opening chapters of Romans is how can a righteous, holy God declare righteous the unrighteous? How can a just God justify the unjust? That, that's really the question of the ages. I mean, that, that's the question, uh, really, human beings, because probably of our ungodliness, our sin don't ask that question. We, we seem to think he should just simply accept us. We, we don't think about him. We don't think about his righteousness and holiness. How, how, can he, how can he accept us? And so Paul lays it out kind of as a summary statement, as a thesis statement. He gives the gospel in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, because in it... The righteousness of God appears from faith for faith. For just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He says, he says here's how it happens. It happens by God in giving us the gift of righteousness that we receive through faith. And then he begins to lay it out. And in beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, even those who have no other kind of revelation of God, no, no, no law, no, no Bible, but, but just creation, that's enough for people to look at creation and see creator and to bow before him. He says, but we don't. We suppress that truth in our unrighteousness. We suppress it. And what happens is we become idolaters. We make gods in our own image. We make our own gods to worship and he said, that's the, the natural course of things for human beings who've sinned. And he said, what about those with the law? He said, well, you have it, but you still don't obey it. And, and, and even those without the law, there's this sense of the requirements of the law written on the hearts of human beings because we're created in the image of God, and still we don't obey that. And so he ends up with the conclusion, as you know, we spent some weeks here, ends up with the conclusion that there are none righteous, no one fears God, and all the law can do is point out our sin, and then we're helpless to really do anything about that. He says, all have sinned, and lack really falls short of lack, the glory of God. And so as we consider that situation, what hope do we have that God will ever be able to accept us, to receive us? What expectation could we have that he could do anything else other than condemn us. And all I can think of is that somehow God is going to have to compromise his righteousness. Somehow he's going to have to figure out a way to, to not be as righteous as he is for somebody like me to be in his presence and to be received by him. But the amazing thing is he doesn't. The scripture says he's righteous, he's just. But also that he can be the one who righteouses or justifies those who have Faith, the one who has faith in Jesus. How does he do that? Well, he takes our sin and its penalty and puts it on his son. He takes it himself. He takes the penalty for our sin. He satisfies the requirements of the law that says that because we're sinners, we should be condemned and cast out of the presence of God. That's what we deserve. He puts that upon his own son himself, his son Jesus, who takes it and even satisfies his, his own righteous anger against us. He should be angry with us for our neglect of him, how we treat him and how we treat each other. Not just the things we do, the external things, but also the thoughts that we have and the reasons we do why we, what we do. 
all the way down to our hearts. And he, he, he takes that, you see. And he takes that anger, and on Jesus, he puts it. And so Jesus propitiates for our sins. He assuages or satisfies or extinguishes or exhausts, whatever word you want to use, the anger of the wrath of God so that God can receive us, so that we can receive his blessing, so that we can hear him say that we're blessed, that his countenance is lifted upon us, and that we can have peace in his, in his presence, you see. And that's the thing. The, the, the great news there is that it all depends upon God, and he really did it. He, he, he did everything. He did everything necessary. There's, there isn't a loophole, as we mentioned last time. There's no loopholes in this. He satisfied everything. Every, every act of righteousness has been done and not done by God. He did it perfectly well, so we can trust him completely. When he says it's done, it's done. And so we can really rest in him. That's the glory of the gospel, that Christ is our redemption. As we read at the end of chapter 3, He's the one who's paid the ransom price so we can be set free from our sin. He is this propitiation so that God's anger is assuaged so that we can receive the blessing of God. And then he asked the question, what then of our boasting? And, and of course, how, how can we boast? How can we boast of ourselves in the presence of God when he did it all? We can only boast of God, not of ourselves. But then we get to chapter 4. And I must think that uh, as I've been reading through this and studying it and we've been sharing about it together, there's a sense in which you have to think, well, isn't Paul done now talking about justification by faith? Isn't he finished? And, and he isn't. He still wants to go one step further, one step deeper. He wants us to see something else so that we'll marvel at him and marvel in this great salvation that he gives to us. And what he's going to do here in chapter four is essentially say, I want you to see that this is the way it's been since the very beginning. That this isn't a new thing, that this isn't a new way, but rather this is the way that people have always been justified if they've been justified. This is the way I declare people righteous. It's never been by their own works of righteousness, but it's always been by faith in it's always been that way. Because you see, we get to this point, and if, if you're a reader of the Bible or if you're in the church in Rome, what you realize is, well, what about Abraham? How was he justified? If you say that we're justified by faith, well, what about Abraham? Isn't, isn't, wasn't he justified because he was righteous? Wasn't his righteous works uh, what justified him? And that was the tradition of Paul's day, the tradition of the rabbis was that Abraham was righteous because he was righteous because of what he did. No doubt thought back to the situation. Remember that story about Abraham incident in his life where God called him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He made all the preparation to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, the heir of the promise. And people say, well, look at that. Isn't that, doesn't that gained for Abraham uh, the righteous declaration of God after he did that? By the way, just as an aside, just so you know, Isaac was the safest person on the planet that day. 
Um, if Abraham didn't obey God and wasn't going to sacrifice them, then he would live. And since Abraham obeyed God and was going to sacrifice Isaac, you remember what happened. Uh, God had in mind always to uh, supply a substitute so Isaac wouldn't be killed. So Isaac was safe. He was good. Might have needed a little counseling uh, later on in life. I don't know. But, uh, but he, was, he was safe, at least at that point. Uh, we trust that God would take care of his emotions uh, as well and see the glory of what took place on that day. So what about Abraham? That's Paul's question. What did he gain according to the flesh, according to his own deeds? What did he gain? Now notice how Paul puts it then in verse two. He says, if if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Paul just said we don't have anything to boast about, but, but but if Abraham was justified by his works, then he would have something to boast about. But then Paul just very abruptly puts, but not before God. Whatever else you want to say about Abraham, he had nothing to boast about before God. He was not righteous in his own way. Verse three then, what does the scripture say? So Paul is saying, let's not talk about what the rabbis say. Let's not talk about tradition says about Abraham. Let's go back to the, to the heart of the matter. Let's go back to the scripture. So turn back, if you have a Bible or some device upon which is a Bible, um, to Genesis, not 15 yet. That's where the quote comes uh, from in uh, Romans 4, but to Genesis chapter 12. To Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We read, now the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham was Abraham, his name would be changed later, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you're reading through Genesis and you get to chapter 12, I would suspect you didn't know it was coming. This would be one of the most startling passages ever. One of the most startling things you've ever read because we're not prepared for it at all. We get a little glimpse of his father in verse 31, whose name was Terah of chapter 11, but that's it. Why does God choose this man, Abraham, who becomes Abraham, why does he choose him out of all the people that were alive at that point in time? In fact, why does he do that at this point in time and not a previous point or a later point. Why this guy? Why Abraham? Because God did that. He took this man, Abraham, and he makes the most astounding promises. Notice these promises that he makes to this man. And he says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. In other words, you get the sense that Abraham's going to be a big deal, that, 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 he, that from him is going to come a, a whole nation of people and that he'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, him who dishonors you, I will curse. In other words, I'll protect you. God himself says, I'll protect you. Somebody blesses you, they'll be my friend. Somebody dishonors you, then I'll curse them. And then this, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Oh my, you're going to be such a big deal that from you, from your seed, your descendants, all the families, not just some of them, all the families of the earth will be be blessed. So if you're Abraham at that point in time, you're expecting a lot to take place in your life. 
And uh, by chapter 15, some years later, none of it had taken place. You gotta be wondering, when I have a dream, what was this all about? Is God really faithful to his promises? This God who made me these promises. So chapter 15, we read this verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I'm your shield, and your reward will be very great. In other words, I'm your protector, shield, and I'm your provider. Your reward will be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will, um, and a member of my household will be my heir. In other words, Abraham's saying, Listen, the best I got is this, this, this household manager that I really trust, but that's it. I guess he's the one you're talking about who will be my heir. So I, I don't have any descendants. So what about the nation? What about the blessing? What about all the families of the earth? Verse four. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So he takes him outside, clear night, looks at the sky, no light pollution, uh, and he can see all these stars that are obviously uncountable. And he says, it's gonna be like that. Parenthetically, we know the great promises that God has given to us. There are times when we wonder if they'll ever come true. Study the life of Abraham. He knows what that's like, and yet he remained faithful. Verse six, and Abraham and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now this word counted that is here in the text and then Paul quotes in Romans four is a word that says to put to another's account. In other words, Abraham had faith and so God put to his account righteousness. His faith wasn't righteousness, wasn't equal to righteousness. Faith was simply that Abraham believed God, believed what God had said, believed that the promise he had made, and even deeper than that we'll see in a minute. But Abraham believed God, and he says, all right, I'm going to consider you, I'm gonna treat you as if you're righteous, you're right in my sight. I'm gonna put righteousness to your account. And in this righteousness, as an account, is a, is a gift. It's something that's, that's given. You might remember, if you're a Bible reader, in Philemon, this little book in the New Testament where Apostle Paul writes to, to Philemon, who was a slave owner, and one of his slaves had run away, Onesimus, and Paul was sending him back to him, not as a slave, but as a brother. And he says, if he owes you anything, put it to my account. That's crediting or counting it to me. Our middle child, Sarah, um, who lives in Pennsylvania, um, has three kids. Her first two, two little boys are uh, now 10 and nine. They're 15 months apart. And um, 
through the early years of their life, Ezra, the oldest, a fairly competent child, like his mother, uh, uh, did many, many things for his younger brother, Ezekiel, who we call Zeke. And uh, a number of years ago, um, Sarah said to Zeke, the younger, um, you know, you start kindergarten in a week. And he looked at her quizzically and said, I thought Ezra did that for me. <laughs> See, what he thought was that Ezra had imputed kindergarten, <laughs> had counted kindergarten for Zeke. And it was a disappointment to realize that wasn't true. But that's the sense of it, right? To put to your account. He did put to your account. And so, so here we have it. Um, that this righteousness is credited. So Paul goes back to Abraham. He says, this was true of Abraham. And verse four, then he begins to flesh this out very easily in terms of illustration. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And you go, well, certainly if you work for someone, you have a, an arrangement, you know, do this work, you pay me this money. And so when you do the work and they pay you the money, really, unless you're, you know, we're just nice people, so we do this, but you don't really need to say thank you because you've earned it. That's their obligation to give you that, that money. Uh, if they don't give it to you, then you can actually go to court with it for them and, and, and get the money. They, they owe it to you. It's not a gift. It's something, in fact, that you've earned. And then verse 5 says, and to the one who does not work, then we could fill that in, the one who doesn't work but, but also gets paid. <laughs> if you don't work and you get paid, then it is a gift. They don't really owe that to you. Some of you know some time ago when I was in seminary, when Karen and I, when I went to seminary, we decided to do something uh, that I've never advised anybody else to do and wouldn't advise them to do this, but we did it because for whatever reason God gave us a gift of faith to do it. And, and so uh, I was 31 at the time, so eight years ago. Um, but uh, 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 we had two little kids, Joshua was three at the time, Sarah was a year and a half. And um, so, um, by the grace of God, we made a decision that I wouldn't work and she wouldn't work, and we wouldn't ask anybody to give us money, we'd only pray. And so, we prayed, and so over the course of three years, people, most of whom we have no idea who they were, uh, because they sent it through a uh, fund account that someone had set up for us unbeknownst to us. And um, so for three years, people sent us money. Uh, and, um, and that was a thank you. They were under no obligation to give us that money. I did nothing for them. I don't even think, as far as I know, I've even ever preached to any of them unless they've gone online and listened. So I don't think I've ever done anything for any of these people. Uh, but they somehow were raised up by God. People who knew us, some people probably didn't. I don't know. And so that was grace. That was a gift. That was a thank you. So he writes in verse five, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Now wrap your mind, if you can, around that expression. That may be the best 
short statement, complete statement even, of justification by faith, that God justifies the ungodly. Think about what he's saying. He's saying God declares righteous those who aren't. So at least he's saying Abraham wasn't righteous. He was ungodly. And we look at Abraham's life and we realize that he was in fact ungodly. We realize that he, he lied a couple of times about his wife Sarah saying she was her sister. He was, she was his sister and, and she kind of was in a creep kind of way. She kind of was. Uh, but he, he lied about her to save his own skin. And that wasn't a good thing to do. He, he, he sinned when uh, uh, he took uh, Sarah's uh, maid and uh, um, with her conceived a child because he thought that's how God wanted to supply the promise. And God said, no, that wasn't it at all. So we, we know Abraham's not righteous. He justifies the ungodly, but that gets very personal very fast because it says that we're ungodly. Paul's made that case all throughout this letter that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know we can't pay for our own sins because if we paid for our own sins, it would require us to be paying throughout all eternity. And we'd never get it done. How can we assuage the anger of God against us when we continue, either things we do or things we think or reasons we do things are contrary to his ways? What can I give him? So how can God justify the ungodly. Again, as we've said, he did it, he's done it through Jesus by taking our sin and putting upon him the penalty for our sin and putting it upon him. That we might be forgiven our sins and we might be declared because of him righteous. Again, faith isn't righteousness, nor is faith the work that we do to get this righteousness. Faith is simply the instrument through which we receive it. It's like the glass, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that reaches out for the water. It's the water that saves the thirsty man because if you put sand in the glass, it won't save. The glass is just the means. The glass is just the instrument that's used for it. Or the cord that plugs into the wall and plugs into the lamp. What makes the lamp light is the electricity not the cord. The cord is simply the means through which it comes. Faith is like that, you see. And so it isn't a work. We don't boast about our faith. We don't say, well, God made it easier. In the Old Testament, they had to obey to get righteousness. Now all we need is faith. No, 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 that's not it. It isn't like that at all. This is is the faith, you see. And if I could just nerd out for just a moment on a couple of expressions, you realize that it says in verse uh, three that Abraham believed God. In verse five, it says he believed in him, or, but he, who believes in him. Uh, to believe God, you have to believe in him, but, but, but it's easy to fall into the trap of saying, I believe in God without believing God. You see, you can say, I believe in him like I believe he exists. I believe he's holy, I believe he's good, I believe he's gracious, I believe he's wonderful, I believe he's the judge. You can can make all the right lists of who he is there. I believe that he is those things. 
But the question is, do you believe him? Do you believe what he says about you and me? Do you believe what he says about himself? Do you believe what he says about Jesus? Do you believe what he says about being justified and being declared righteous by him? Do we believe that? Do we trust him in all of that? That's the real question, you see. So sometimes people will casually say, oh, I know that person, they believe in God. And, you know, depending on my time and my mood and all of that, I want to just say, what does that mean? But does he believe these things? Somebody could say they believe in God, but then you get on the root, you see, forgive me, but as I get older, I get bolder, and I'm sitting in airplanes, I hope someday again, and, and, and somebody said, I believe in God, and I want to say, so you believe you're ungodly. Now, there's some steps to get there, <laughs> but, 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 but if you believe God, you believe his, his verdict upon human beings, upon humanity, that we've sinned against him, that we're ungodly, that we're hopeless and helpless without him. You believe that. And sometimes people go, no, not that. You know, I'm, I'm a good person. I, go, nah. I get that. I know what you're saying. And in that sense, maybe you are, but not in, the, not, in, not in the salvation sense, not in this sense of real righteousness before God. You see? So we can believe in him. The question is, do we believe him about these things? That's, that's what we have to get to in our own lives and the lives of others. Do we believe him? Abraham believed him. Now, this is just mind-boggling. But when Abraham believed God, we know that uh, he believed the promise that you'll have descendants and all of that. But there's something else. When he was justified through his faith, through faith, declared righteous by God, you get the sense from Jesus that Abraham saw more deeply. See, one of the fantastic things about Romans 4, one of the reasons why when I come to this every time I read through the Bible, every time I'm reading through the scripture, that it excites me, is because Romans 4 is one of those passages that helps you see the whole thing, helps you see everything. That this salvation by grace through faith, this, this justification by faith isn't just a New Testament thing, but it's the way it's always been. And, and, and God just opens up and says, see, this is the consistency of who I am. This is the way it's always been, and we can see it. Uh, St. Augustine said, uh, the old is in the new um, uh, revealed, and the new is in the old concealed, meaning what's in the Old Testament I know I just said that really fast. Uh, but what's in the Old Testament uh, uh, is revealed to us. We see it finally in the New Testament. Right? Because it's revealed there. It's concealed. Can't quite see it. But it all points to Jesus. And then when the new comes along, we read it back and we go, oh, I see it. So there was a day, you find this in John chapter 8, there was a day in the life of Jesus when he was talking to the religious leaders and they were, they were saying they believed in God and God was their father and Abraham was their father and all that. And Jesus said, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I don't think God's your father. I don't think Abraham's your father because if he was, then you'd receive me. And Abraham makes, I mean, uh, Jesus makes this statement about Abraham and he, and he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. That blew their minds. 
Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. In other words, when all this is unfolding in the life of Abraham, when he's justified through faith, when he's declared righteous by God, he sees it. There's, I know he sees all the way through the cross and all the way through Jesus. No, no, no. But, but he sees the day of Jesus, you see. When, when that promise is made to him that through your descendant, your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He sees it. Later on, God calls him to slay his son Isaac, and then God offers a substitute so Isaac doesn't have to be killed. He sees it. He saw my day. God's saying, listen, this is the way I've always, this way I've always done it. Now, think about this. That this justification is instantaneous and forever. This justification is instantaneous and forever. At your conversion, when you believe, you're as righteous before God as you'll ever be. You're as righteous before God as you ever need to be. Because the righteousness that's given to you as a gift is the righteousness of Jesus. It's his obedience for you. It's his righteousness before you. Now this righteousness isn't infused in you that you're so, you're not ultimately saved by your own righteousness then. It's the righteousness that's imputed or counted to you or put into your account, the righteousness of Jesus. And that's all you'll ever, ever need. You don't need anybody else's righteousness. You don't need, just in case you, you know, you kind of leak a little and some of the righteousness sneaks out, you know, drips out. You don't need the righteousness of somebody else who's got some extra you know, God says, well, I'm going to borrow from saint whatever and give it to you. No, 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 no. You've got all the righteousness you'll ever need and be as righteous as you ever are at that moment in time, you see. And it's, it's forever. It's not like on loan. It's not like God gives you 100 righteousness points and then you sin a little, so you're down to 97. So then you've got to do something. I mean, why not? You're a Christian now. You've got to do something in order to kick it back up to 100. No, 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 no. It's instantaneous. And it's forever. And there's no penance in the Christian faith. There's nothing we do. I don't know about you, but I hate to admit this. I really hate to admit this. You know, there's some times when I, I sin. Um, doesn't happen every time I sin, but some of the times I sin, you know, I, I think, I know I need to confess this sin, but before I do, I'm going to read my Bible for a while or maybe do something nice for somebody. Because uh, then when I go to confess this sin, it won't seem so bad. Like I can say, you know, God, I, I read my Bible for an hour and a half. I know I did that, but, but since then, you know, I've been a pretty good guy. <sighs> and the Lord's grace is to forgive me. But, you know, I can see him if he is scratching his head going, Bill, 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 Bill. You know better than this. You know better than this. Because you see, it wasn't just that way with Abraham, it was that way with David. Now I won't spend much time with David because I know we're almost out of time. 
But, but he comes now to, to David, verse six. And he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. That's just Abraham, but he goes to this other great Israelite, the king, the great king David, and he said it was the same for him. Now we all know that David wasn't righteous. We know David's sin. It's pretty obvious with us. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 11, I read that passage this week with a group of men with whom I pray on Wednesdays and, and, and once again just disheartened and saddened and humbled, convicted just by David's life and we saw his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, his deception of the nation, his murder ultimately of her husband. David writes psalms, poems, songs about sin and forgiveness. Psalm 51 is one that's written right after or sometime after David has sinned with Bathsheba and he comes and makes confession to God. And you'll notice in Psalm 51 that David comes to confess his sins not based on anything he's ever done other than the sin. He doesn't say, since that sin, I've done these things. I conquered 12 nations for you, Lord, and I did this and I did that. He doesn't mention, he said, I come according to your steadfast love and mercy. You've promised to love me steadfastly forever. You've promised not to let me go. And all I have to appeal to on the basis of my sin is that. And then Psalm 32 is similar, and this is what Paul quotes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those not condemned are those. It's just a remarkable statement. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, whose trespasses, when we go where we shouldn't go, are forgiven. And whose sins, missing the mark, when we don't do uh, what we should. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man <clears throat> against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word count again. David knew that when he sinned, God took his sin and didn't count it to David, but counted it to another. That's amazing, isn't it? Now again, I don't know how much David had in mind about the Messiah. He had a lot in mind about the Messiah. He talked about the shepherd to come, and he talked about the one who was going to be born out of the seed of, of Jesse and all of that, but, 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 he, but he didn't count his sin, didn't put his sin to his account, to David's account, but to the account of another, so much so that he would end that Psalm 32. I think Paul quoted the beginning of Psalm 32, knowing that some preacher someday would go back to it and read the whole thing. The last verse of Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. The one whose sins are forgiven, David calls righteous. And shout for joy all you who are upright in heart. I've had people say to me, after I've shared the gospel with them and we talked about it, maybe on one occasion or maybe on 10 occasions, but I've had them say to me, I don't think I'm ready yet. And my response is, you're as ready as you'll ever be because there's nothing you can do between now and the time you believe and receive it that will make you more worthy to receive it. See, Christians are people 
who stopped trying to earn the favor of God. Now, that doesn't mean what we do in our lives doesn't matter. We'll get to that in chapter 6. But we're talking about justification. Christians are people who stop trying to earn this righteousness and to receive it. And we see it. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. The same way he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, We declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring that when we sin, he counts it to Jesus. When we sin, he counts that sin and his wrath and the penalty to Jesus. And he counts Jesus' righteousness to us. He justifies the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, we have nothing in ourselves, about which, from which, in which to boast. Come with nothing. As we look around the room, we look around the room at a whole group of people who comes with nothing other than sin. And that sin you account to your son and his righteousness to us. So we boast in you. God, we give you thanks for all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And convince us again there's nothing we do to earn this or merit it or even demerit it. It's all done. We receive it by believing you. By believing you about who you are in your righteousness and your grace. By believing you about who Jesus is, this Savior, Redeemer. By believing you about our own sinfulness and ungodliness and believing you about the gospel. There is grace that comes through faith. There is justification that comes through faith in Jesus. Please cement that in our minds, our hearts. 
cause us to be grateful, to be joyful, um, to be blessed. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.